Hello, I'm Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to Executive Edge, a new podcast from the Federal Judicial Center focused on executive leadership in the federal judiciary. Each episode is designed to bring practical leadership guidance, research, and insight to judiciary executives. Today's episode is about the importance of timing. Time is the great equalizer. We all get the same number of minutes and hours in each day, yet some of us get more done in those 24 hours and seem happier as a result. And while some people claim to be night owls, are they really doing their best work during those hours? Scientific research indicates there are better times to do certain tasks and even to make important decisions. For leaders who are often focused on what to do or how to do it, today's episode sheds light on why focusing on when to do things might just be a leadership game changer. Our host for today's episode is my colleague, Michael Siegel, Senior Education Specialist at the Federal Judicial Center. Michael, take it away. Thanks, Lori. Today we're going to talk with Daniel Pink, the highly acclaimed author of numerous best-selling books, including his latest, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which we're going to talk about today. In addition to being a well-known author, Dan was the host and co-executive producer of Crowd Control, a television series about human behavior on the National Geographic Channel. He appears frequently on NPR's Hidden Brain, the PBS NewsHour, and other TV and radio networks. Dan has also been a contributing editor at Fast Company and has published articles and essays in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, and the New Republic. His TED Talk on the Science of Motivation is one of the 10 most watched TED Talks of all time. It's my pleasure to introduce Daniel Pink. Michael, it's great to be here. So Dan, let's talk about your most recently written book, when the scientific secrets of perfect timing in the last sense of that book you say i used to think that timing was everything now i believe that everything is timing why do you say that well if you look at the research on timing which is research that spreads across literally two dozen different disciplines what it's, it suggests is that what's fundamental to being human is that we are temporal creatures we talk about biological, a biological clock. We have biological clocks in every cell in our body, and we are moving through time. And so if you look at this rich body of research, it gives us clues about how to construct our day, when to take breaks, how beginnings affect us, how midpoints affect us, how endings affect us, how groups synchronize in time, how the way we think about time affects what we do. And so we're immersed in a, in a whole array of timing decisions in our lives. We tend to make them in a pretty sloppy, ill-informed way. What I'm hoping in this book is to give people the evidence to make them in a smarter, more systematic, more scientific way. Boy, we could all use that. Absolutely. Your book teaches us that we all operate, as you just said, with internal biological clocks, and these dictate a sequence of effectiveness in our day. Right. We have peaks, troughs, and recoveries, which affect not only our energy level, but even our cognitive abilities. Why is this important for us to know? Your last point is really essential, our cognitive abilities. One of the things this research tells us is that our cognitive abilities do not stay the same throughout the day. They change. They change in predictable ways, and the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can be significant. 
And what, what's more is that our best time to do something cognitively depends on what kind of cognitive task it is. So let me take three steps back and explain this. Almost all of us go through the day in three stages. As you mentioned, Michael, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Now, about 80% of us go through in that order. Peak early in the day, trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. People who are night owls, about 20% of the population, much, much, much more complicated. The key with them is that they hit their peak late afternoon, early evening, into the evening. Now, here's what we know about these three stages. Each of them have different characteristics. The peak, the main characteristic of the peak is that that's when we are most vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? Vigilant means you're able to bat away distractions. And that makes the peak, which again, for most of us is early in the day, for owls much, much later in the day, that makes the peak the ideal time to do analytic work, work that requires heads down, focus, and attention. Now, during the trough, the middle, early to mid-afternoon, that's a very dangerous time. There's a whole array of data showing that there are more auto accidents then, there are more medical errors then, corporate performance drops, student test scores sink. It's not our ideal time of day. And so what we should be doing then is doing the kind of work that doesn't require massive cognitive power or creativity. Answering routine emails, filling out expense reports, something like that. And then the recovery, which again, for most of us is late afternoon, early evening. Uh, that's a very interesting time because our mood is up, but our vigilance is down. And that makes it an interesting time, an effective time at least, for iterative brainstorming, things that require mental looseness. And what this tells us is that if we do the right work at the right time, we're going to do better. We're going to feel better, but we're mm. also going to do better. This research shows that time of day alone explains about 80% of the variance in how people perform on cognitive tasks. And so if we're intentional about it, if we do our analytic work during the peak, our administrative work during the trough, and our insight, iterative, creative work during the recovery, we're going to perform a little better. Absolutely fascinating. Let's say, for instance, that I'm a federal judge who has an important opinion to write or a court unit executive who has to conduct a performance appraisal for an employee. When is the best time to act? Whoa, I mean, that's a huge, huge question, and there actually is some very, very interesting research, not all of it exactly heartening, about judicial decision-making and even jury decision-making. And what it tells us pretty clearly is that decision-makers of any kind, which include judges, juries, don't make the same decisions at different times of day. There's a famous study, probably some of your listeners will know about this, out of Israel, of judges making decisions about parole. Mm -hmm. And what this study found is that potential parolees were more likely to get parole early in the day and immediately after the judge had her break. And so in this study, which was done in part by Jonathan Lavav at Stanford, going for parole before a judge's break gave you about a 10% chance of getting parole. Going for parole, having your hearing immediately after the judge had a break, gave you about a 70% chance. So there was a 7x difference, explicable almost entirely by time of day. You see the same thing in jury decision-making, at least experimentally. Some interesting research showing that if the jurors who deliberate in the afternoon are more likely to resort to racial stereotypes than jurors who deliberate in the morning. Again, it's all about vigilance. When we're vigilant, we don't take as many of these shortcuts, whether it's ignoring the evidence, whether it's sloppy reasoning, whether it is stereotyping. As for the performance reviews, that's a really, really important and interesting question. It really depends. I mean, you have to think about what the purpose of the performance review is. If the purpose of the performance review is to help the other person grow and learn, 
then I would argue for most people, it's better to do it in the morning rather than any other time of day. There's some interesting evidence on for things like <laughs> therapy, to me, is a form of learning, other kinds of learning that people actually learn a little bit, many people, not all, learn a little bit more early in the day rather than later in the day. And mm -hmm. so a performance review early in the day might be more effective than one later in the day. But the question you asked is the key question, which is we have to start factoring that in when we make these kinds of decisions. And what we've done in general, not only in the court system, in the judicial system, in the justice system, is we've ignored time of day as a factor. And it doesn't explain everything, but it explains a lot. Great. I'm thinking uh, the performance review in the morning could make it more of an analytical rather than an administrative task. Absolutely. That's a great point, too. I mean, a performance review, what's the point of the exercise? The point of the exercise is to give people information to help them make progress and learn and grow as an employee. And so you want to do that when there's some degree of uh, learning capacity. You don't want to do that at 1 o'clock in the afternoon when both the giver and the recipient are nodding off. Your research strongly suggests that for most of us, night owls excluded, strong cognitive effort that requires focus and vigilance should be completed in the morning, while insightful exercises that require more expansive, creative thinking should be completed in the afternoon. Can you elaborate? I think it's important to understand a little bit more about why this is. And, and as you mentioned in your question, Michael, a lot of it goes to vigilance. Vigilance is an extremely important factor in a lot of cognitive performance. Here's the challenge with vigilance. For some cognitive tasks, vigilance is actually a bug rather than a feature. So let's say that you and I are at a meeting and we're brainstorming ideas. What you don't want in a brainstorming session is people who are hypervigilant, saying, that's a bad idea, that's a bad idea, that's a bad idea. And especially in the, with people who are trained in the law, who themselves are very good at deconstructing things mm -hmm. uh, rather than constructing things. You want to have some kind of looseness. The most important thing here is, and, and it's in your question, Michael, is this intentionality. We are not very intentional about when we do things in the course of a day. We think, it, uh, oh, I happen to have a pocket of time to write this opinion at 2 o'clock, between 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock. That's probably a bad idea for most judges, mm -hmm. all right? What you want to be able to do is you want to be intentional about when you do things in the same way that we are intentional about what we do, how we do it, who we do it with. We're reasonably intentional about those aspects of our work, but when it comes to when we do things, we think it doesn't matter. It matters. It matters a lot. Absolutely. On the other hand, in organizations like the judiciary, yeah. we really can't control our schedule with that kind of intentionality in mind. Sure. Right. But you still suggest there are ways to mitigate the negative consequences of doing things in non-peak hours mm -hmm. when, when our schedule may force us right. to do that. Right. So can you discuss, for example, vigilance and taking restorative breaks? Sure. Sure. It's, I think it's a, it's, it's a really great point. At any kind of workplace, people don't have full discretion over when you do things. Now, at certain aspects of the judiciary, you're going to have more discretion, less discretion. At certain moments in a judge's or a team's work, you're going to have more discretion or less discretion, but you're not going to have 100% discretion over the when. Nobody really has that. So what do you do? First of all, you have to exercise the discretion. That sounds like a legal term. We have to exercise the discretion when you actually, when you can. So if you have some authority about when you do your analytic work, when you do your insight work, 
make those decisions in accordance with the science. Now, the other thing which you mentioned is is brakes, extraordinarily important. What we know about brakes, well, the science of brakes now is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. One way to mitigate some of these harms, especially in that afternoon trough, is to have more brakes and certain kinds of brakes. What we know about brakes is this, that something is better than nothing. So even a short break is better than no break at all. We know that moving is better than stationary. So the extent to which you can have people walk around or the extent to which you yourself walk around, that's good. We know that outside is better than inside. Some really interesting research on the restorative effects of, of nature. We know that social is better than solo. And that's true even for introverts, that breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on our own. And we know that fully detached beats semi-detached, um, so that when you take a break, let's say in an office, don't talk about work during the break, and don't bring your phone with you. And so if we get into the habit in not only in judicial workplaces, but in workplaces of any stripe, every afternoon people take a 10 or 15 minute walk outside with someone they like, talking about something other than work and leaving their phone behind, you're mm. going to have higher performance and you're going to have happier people. I love that advice. And, and it's something that's, it's something yeah. that's within our grasp. Because yeah. here's the thing. You know, it's like we can't change everything. It's, it's really, really hard to make bold changes in a workplace. Mm -hmm. There are demands on all of us. Everybody, particularly in any kind of government setting, is doing more. It has to do more with less. You can't fix everything. But this idea of this, like taking this regular break in the afternoon is something that all of us can do, and it's not a nicey-nice thing, Michael. There's, a, there's an incredible body of evidence showing that this helps us perform better and feel better. Great. And we're about to take a restorative break <laughs> ourselves. So one more question before we take a break, Dan, and this goes to the leaders that are listening mm -hmm. to us, the court unit executives, the chief judges, etc. If you're able to control anything about the calendar as a leader, mm -hmm. What can you do to set yourself and your staff up for success during the day or during the week? I think the most important thing is meetings. So in any kind of workplace, including any kind of court system or judicial unit, people have meetings. And when we talk about meetings in, in the workplace, when we schedule meetings, the only criterion people ever use is availability. Is Mary available? Is Jose available? And is conference room 3C open? We need to be strategic and intentional about meetings and say, okay, who's going to be at this meeting? Most important, what kind of meeting is it? Is this a meeting where we need people to be analytical? Is this purely an administrative meeting? Is this a meeting about our travel voucher policy? Is this an insight meeting? Are we brainstorming ideas for things? Then, who's going to be at this meeting? Are there people who are more morning-oriented types? Are there people who are more evening-oriented types? Are there people who are in the middle? We don't factor those in. We just say, who's available, and is there a room open? And what we need to do, the best thing that we can do at any kind of workplace is to be in, is ask those questions when we schedule meetings. What types of people are going to be there? What types of tasks need to get done? And what do we know about the science of timing to allow us to schedule those meetings at the right time? Excellent. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking with Daniel Pink about the impact of timing on leadership. I'm Michael Siegel, and you're listening to Executive Edge. Are you a deputy court unit executive who wants to take your leadership skills to the next level? If so, check out what upcoming deputy CUE programs and opportunities the FJC has in store for you. 
The new Deputy CUE program is a three-day seminar that focuses on the critical knowledge, skills, and attributes that new Deputy CUEs need in order to successfully transition into an executive role for the first time. If you're a Deputy CUE who has been in your position from six months to two years, then check out the new Deputy CUE program. On the other hand, if you have three or more years in your role as a Deputy CUE, then the Experience Deputy CUE program may be for you. This two-and-a-half-day seminar explores advanced leadership skills that experienced Deputy CUEs can refine in order to excel in their roles. If you're looking for something a little more in-depth, the Judiciary Executive Leadership Program, or JELP, is a year-long blended learning program that has been crafted to inspire experienced CUEs and Deputy CUEs to further develop their expertise. This program investigates new ideas and best practices that are aimed at improving your individual districts, circuits, and the judiciary. JELP is your path to discovering emerging leadership and management challenges, best organizational practices, and state-of-the-art thinking about organizational development. And last but not least, if you are a Deputy CUE with solid teaching experience, a passion for collaborative learning with your peers, and a desire to cultivate leadership in others, the FJC is currently recruiting potential candidates to serve as faculty for our Deputy programs. For more information on eligibility and how to apply, or to learn more about any of these programs, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and see why past participants have called these programs, quote, the most valuable in my career. Welcome back. I'm Michael Siegel, and you're listening to Executive Edge. I'm talking with Daniel Pink, author of When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, until now, we've been talking about your book and what to do in any given day to maximize productivity and satisfaction. In the second section of the book, you discuss why beginnings, middles, and endings are so critical as time markers. That is, looking at things that take place over longer than a day, such as a project or even taking it to the personal level, a career. Mm -hmm. In looking first at beginnings, how do beginnings influence our thinking and behavior? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a really important point here, just in general, because the day exerts a powerful effect on our mood and our performance, and we can respond to that, but, you know, we're on a planet that's turning, okay? We can't have no control over the day, but much of our lives, as you suggest, Michael, are episodic, and episodes have stages. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end, and each of those stages in those episodes exerts a different effect on our behavior. And so you mentioned beginnings. Beginnings have all kinds of effects. So if you look at something like careers, there's some incredible research from Lisa Kahn at Yale. She's an economist showing that the unemployment rate, the year somebody graduates from college, can predict their wages 20 years later. That the initial starting conditions of your career have an outsized effect literally on how much you earn. And so if you have two similarly situated people, equal levels of ability, background, etc., and one graduates in a recession and one graduates in a boom, the person graduating in a boom 20 years into their career is likely to be out-earning the other person. You look at even graduation from MBA programs. If you graduate from an MBA program, Master's of Business Administration program, during a recession, you are less likely to become CEO of a large company. And so these initial conditions matter a lot more. You see it in a whole range of different activities, and this is one area where we have some but not full capacity to reshape those beginnings. 
And Dan, why is the concept of a fresh start so important? Well, that's exactly one of the areas where we do have an ability to shape our beginnings. And so let's take a, a step back here. There's a rich body of research on what are called temporal landmarks. Temporal landmarks are days and dates that stand out in time the way that physical landmarks stand out in space. So let's think about a physical landmark in space. You're traveling along, you're driving your car. Someone says, look for the Chipotle on the corner, right? So you're driving along, oh, there's a Chipotle on the corner. You slow down a little bit, you orient yourself. Certain dates of the year have that same kind of effect. A lot of dates of the year just kind of fly by us, mm -hmm. but some dates are more landmarks. And some researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, Katie Milkman, Jason Reese, and Heng Chen Dai, have done some research on what they call fresh start dates. And these fresh start dates are really, really intriguing. What they do is they trigger a peculiar form of mental accounting. There are certain dates of the year where we treat them like a business treats the first day of the year or first day of a calendar. We open up essentially a fresh ledger on ourselves in the same way that a business opens up a fresh ledger at the beginning of a reporting period like a quarter. And what this means is the following. So the dates that operate as fresh start dates for us are things like the beginning of the month, the beginning of the week, certain personal milestones. And that makes it a better time to begin a form of behavior change. So you're more likely to, say, start a diet or start a new exercise regimen, and therefore more likely to actually succeed in doing it because you have started. You're more likely to do that on a Monday rather than a Thursday, the first of the month rather than the 13th of the month the day after your birthday rather than two days before your birthday, the first day of spring semester if you're a college student rather than 14 days before the end of winter semester. And so these kinds of temporal landmarks, we can use them to more intentionally make that fresh start and try to do something that is enormously difficult for human beings, which is to change our behavior. Let's turn to the midpoints. I was captured by your discussion of these you say that research indicates that midpoints can propel us, providing a spark, or they can mire us, providing a slump. How can we have more sparks and fewer slumps? Yeah, well, you got it exactly right in the analysis. Midpoints have a dual effect. Sometimes they bring us down, sometimes they fire us up. So you see evidence of people getting to the middle of a process. There's a famous study of giving people five shapes to cut out. They try to, to cut the shapes out as meticulously as possible, and they give them five shapes, and people are very meticulous on shape one, very meticulous on shape five, least meticulous on shape three. That could sag in the middle. You see some interesting research on the well-being across almost all nationalities where uh, we have a U-shaped curve of well-being. So in the middle of our lives, there's no crisis, but there's a gentle slump. And so yet there's other evidence showing that, for instance, in basketball teams, all right, one of the things about midpoints is that midpoints are generally invisible in our lives. Sometimes beginnings are a little bit more visible. You look on the calendar and say, hey, it's the 1st of uh, October. And sometimes endings are visible because, oh, wow, I'm having a going away party for this job I had for 30 years. <laughs> but midpoints are less visible to us, uh, and yet they exert that effect. And one of the ways that we see a spark is with the following. So there, there are some enterprises where midpoints are made visible, and one of them would be basketball. Basketball has a midpoint. It has a halftime. A horn goes off at the midpoint. And so a couple of researchers, Devin Pope at the University of Chicago and Jonah Berger at the University of Pennsylvania, looked at tens of thousands of NBA 
National Basketball Association games to see whether the score at halftime predicted the outcome of the game, and it turned out it did. Teams that were ahead at halftime were more likely to win. Not a shocker, I don't think. The game's half over and the team is ahead. But there was an exception to that, and the exception was this. Teams that were down by one were more likely to win the game than teams that were ahead by one at halftime. That being behind by one at halftime was as advantageous as being ahead by two at halftime. In its later experimental research, what, what they found was that being slightly behind at the midpoint can be very motivating. And so one way to reckon with midpoints is to be aware of them. Uh, once we're aware of something, we can more intentionally and consciously use them as a spark rather than a slump. And one way to help them create a spark is to imagine at a midpoint we're a little bit behind. So let's take that and apply it to a group working on a project in the courts. Okay. It is not in your research a steady march forward. It has moments of slump. I, I, exactly, yeah. And so how do we deal with that if we're supervising yeah. projects? Well, that's a great point. And, and some of the team performance, there seems to be this organic thing happening with team performance. This is the research of Connie Gersick, formerly at UCLA, showing when she, when she studied teams, how they actually got through a project. And she was looking at kind of the meat and potatoes of organizational teamwork. So insurance companies starting a new onboarding process or something like that. What she found is that in her methodology was to videotape and audio tape all of these team interactions. And what she found is that, let's say a team has 31 days to do a project. What she found is that during the first half of that 31 days, very little happened. There was a lot of posturing, there was a lot of status seeking, there was some enthusiasm, but there wasn't a huge amount of actual work. And then what happened, there was a moment when groups kicked off old patterns and really got down to business, and that was invariably at the temporal midpoint. It's so much so that there was often a person on the team who acted like that basketball halftime horn who said, hey guys, we've squandered half of our time we got to get going here. Mm -hmm. and, and so what happened was is that when teams progressed, it wasn't the steady, smooth, linear progression from beginning to end. It was much more volatile. So nothing, 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 nothing. Boom. And then things really got going. Now, that could be okay. All mm -hmm. right. That could be a way. But a way to help mitigate that perhaps would be for team leaders to impose uh, interim deadlines on things. I see. Um, so if you have 31 days, say, all right, at the end of day five, we want to accomplish this. You know, at the end of day uh, 11, we want to accomplish this. And so uh, establishing those kinds of milestones might be a way to prevent your team from getting behind. So milestones can be effective. Just lay down a few milestones along the way, and people will move toward those milestones. Super. The last societal time marker you talk about are endings. What is it about the end of something a task, a project, or a program that's so powerful? And what can we do to make endings even more impactful? Well, I mean, on the second part, we can have endings have more impact when we're intentional about them. Endings have a profound effect on our behavior on a number of different dim dimensions. So one of them I just mentioned is that when we get to the end of something, we kick a little harder. So when an end becomes salient, we move a little bit faster. It's a very, very sturdy finding in psychological science from, you know, literally from like the 1930s or so and some of the research that a fellow named Clark Hull did with rats, that when we see the end of something, we kick harder. This is one reason why you have very peculiar kinds of findings. So, for instance, there's a well-known study of gift certificates where the researchers gave 
a gift, you know, let's say a $100 gift certificate to a large group of people. Half of them had three weeks to cash in the gift certificate. Half of them had two months to cash in the gift certificate. Now, you would think the group with more time would be more likely to cash in the gift certificate, but that's wrong. The group that had less time was five times more likely to cash in the gift certificate than the group that had more time. That doesn't, it just doesn't yeah. make any sense until you start reckoning with this, that for the, the group with only three weeks, the end was salient. The group with two weeks, the end kind of faded away. And so endings can help us energize. Endings have a disproportionate effect on how people remember experiences and encode experiences. That is huge. Endings are also a source of meaning for people. Uh, endings also, in general, we want endings with a, they can help us elevate and feel better, rising sequence versus the de declining sequence. I think that in the judicial setting, particularly for trials, I mean, what happens at the, at the end of a trial is massively important. Everything we know about memory formation and impressions it shows that the end has a disproportionate effect on how people in will encode the entire experience. And you build on that by indicating that people prefer to end on a high note. Right. So let's go back to the performance appraisal. Yeah. Should the unit executive start with praise or critique? Not even a close call, Michael, even though I've been doing it wrong all my whole life. I was always someone who would say, who'd give you the good news first and then the bad news. Uh -huh. Try to soften the blow, ease into it. Absolutely wrong. What the research shows is that when you have good news and bad news to give, you should give the bad news first and then the good news. And if you look at people's preferences, and this is something I've gotten so wrong, most people prefer to give the good news first and then the bad news. But if you ask people what they want to receive, almost four to five people prefer to begin with the bad hmm. and end with the good. That's what I want. And, but even I was too stupid to extrapolate from my own experience and do that for other people. And so, especially for if you're giving feedback or if you're doing performance appraisals, bad news first and then good news. Bad news first and then good news. And this, this idea of a feedback sandwich where you go good, bad, good is the worst idea of all. <laughs> well, I've been guilty of that myself sometimes. I, me too. Yeah. Toward the end of your book, you talk about another fascinating way about endings, synchronization. You share some amazing studies and evidence about the positive effect of synchronized human effort. What does this look like in a work context and why does it matter? Yeah, so what we know, there's some very interesting research on how groups synchronize in time. And what you can do is you can look at things like choral groups, uh, you can look at things like rowers, and there's huge effects when people are in synchrony with other people. They change psychologically, physiologically, I would argue there's evidence even morally. And so, so what we know is that, for instance, the research on choral singing, which is just mind-boggling, that people who sing in choruses, not people who sing, but people who sing together with other people, report greater satisfaction. There are, um, there's some evidence that it's a prophylactic against depression. Uh, you even see physiological things like elevated pain thresholds, increased production of immunoglobulin. And then you also see when people do synchronize activities, particularly kids, they're more likely afterwards to be open to other people, to be collaborative, to do, to do good deeds. So there's something fundamental about synchronizing in time with other people. I think that it suggests to, say, you know, small groups in the judicial workplace, are there things that we can do where we synchronize in time? Are there, I don't think that every judicial chamber should have its own mini chorus, but <laughs> it's actually not that bad of an idea. 
and what we know about the principles of group synchronization is that it requires a sense of belonging and that when we synchronize with other people, we're more likely to do good. And when we do good, we get better at synchronizing with other people. So it's one of those areas of life where there actually is a virtuous circle rather than a vicious cycle. Wow. So interesting. Dan, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about the importance of time and timing? Well, it sort of goes to your very first question, which is you know, that, that at some level everything is, is timing. You know, as I mentioned, you know, we are temporal creatures, we human beings. We have biological clocks in essentially every cell in our body. We also move through time. So even this interview, you know, this interview had a beginning, it had a middle and an end. The interview began in the past. It hasn't ended yet, so it's going to end in the future. You know, that's kind of, and, and then once it's ended, anybody listening to this will be hearing it in the past. So, like, we're immersed in time and timing. And so I think if we're awake to that, that's the first step. And, and then, if we're, as I mentioned before, if we're intentional about making decisions and taking in this factor of when, I think we can work smarter and live better. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Michael. Thanks, Michael, and thanks to our listening audience as well. If you're interested in learning more about Dan Pink and his book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, you can visit the executive education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap on Executive Edge Podcast. And now, Executive Edge can be delivered directly to your computer or mobile device. Simply go to your podcast app, search for Executive Edge, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Executive Edge is produced by Jennifer Richter and directed by Maisha Pope. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>